Hello, and a very warm welcome to Passions. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be welcoming Rapinda Ashworth to the show. So Rapinda, thank you ever so much for joining me on Passions. Tell me what your passion is and what you're about. Hi. Hi, Phil. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, what am I about and what are my passions? Um, I wish I could sum it up in sort of one sentence and go, oh, my passion is live dance or something. You know, I, it, it's, a, it's a tough one. I think my passion and what drives me is probably something that was instilled in me right from the very beginning by my parents who are immigrants. So I'm first generation um one of three i've got a twin sister and an older sister um mum and dad uh my mum's british ugandan came over went over to india when her family was thrown out by idi amin um and then got married there and then they came over to the uk in about 67 68 i think i was born in 70 and what it is is that education and hard hard work trumps everything and it's been instilled in me since literally the very first day. Um, and it's something that I'm sure my children hate me for banging on about to them as well. But that whole being able to work bloody hard, do the very best you can do, leave absolutely nothing else left out there on the floor and get that education is the thing that just propels you in life it opens your mind it opens your eyes and it opens you up to a myriad new possibilities so my dad worked three jobs to send my twin and myself to a private school because he understood that education is what focuses you um and ever since then it's been about just working the hardest you can possibly work to get to where you need to go. And I'd like to say I've got some fabulous life plan about where I need to go and where I need to go. And I haven't, I've just grabbed opportunities as and when I've come through. So originally I thought I was supposed to grow up and be a lawyer and be good old sensible grown up Rue. Um, and then, um, you know, originally from Bradford. And at that time, Bradford was a really depressed place. No, actually when I left Bradford, it was still okay. As since those times, it's basically had all of this really hard, a really hard time to be in Bradford, I think. Yeah. Time, I just knew I needed to get out. I just needed to experience stuff, lots and lots of stuff. Um, and my economics A-level teacher said, well, Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank or Midland Bank, as it was then, back in the old days, if you remember the listening bank. <laughs> yeah, um, my dad used to work for Midlands. That's how I know. Well, there you go. Yeah. And um, they offered a scholarship. Um, which was basically a sponsored place at university to study banking and finance. Well, I'm not particularly numerate. I'm numerate enough. Um, but I was interested in economics and I was interested in business and I'd set up the school tuck shop or some glamorous thing like that. <laughs> I understood about <clears throat> business. Um, and so I got on this scholarship, um, went off to Loughborough University. It was brilliant. So, you know, you're a, I know I went to a private school, but actually we did not have any money. You know, for seven years of being at that school, we never had a holiday, never had a new car, never had takeout food, which I suppose we, none of us did really back in the 70s and 80s, did we? But, um, you know, none of that. And then suddenly you go off to university and I'm being paid to go to university. 
Um, and I'm very, very lucky to be of that generation where if your parents didn't have the means, you got a free education and you didn't run up a lifetime's worth of debt, which was brilliant. Mm. Um, and as I saw these opportunities, it was banking and then it was marketing and then it was the creative side of things. And I've just hopped throughout lots of different things. But all the way through that, my drive has always been the experience that I've left people with of me, which is she works bloody hard. She's a good laugh. She doesn't take herself too seriously, but she takes her work really, really seriously. And I know that's not terribly exciting. You know, it's not like, you know, my passion is learning to play the bass guitar or, or any of those things, but it is, hopefully I would say, if you talk to anyone about me, that would be their enduring thing that whatever she, chooses to get involved with she absolutely throws herself into it hook line and sinker do you know i think that's absolutely fascinating and i'll tell you why uh, as you probably know this whole passions journey whilst i'm capturing these video interviews uh, with people and obviously online at the moment but it'll also be face to face um it's really a journey of investigation and it's an, a journey of in a study almost as to mm. passions what drives passions and but you're absolutely right. And when I when I started this process, um, it was about the passion about I want to be a singer. And this is the journey I went on to become a singer mm -hmm. or all the other things that people, you know, like, I don't know, more recently, Lewis Hamilton winning the the, the, the Formula One seven, you know, seven world yeah. championships all that. But what's interesting about that, this conversation is for the first time, I'm suddenly realizing actually that my that actually passions can be a mindset yeah it doesn't have to be a thing yeah yes so congratulations you've taken me on a new journey of, of investigation <laughs> because everything you said there is about a mindset not yeah. trying to be the ballerina or all the millions of other things which i think is really really fascinating i mean you've got to we'll have one if you've got to give it everything i think and it is something i instill in my children it's really interesting i was listening to a podcast so eddie hearn who's the boxing promoter i'm really interested in sports sort of thinking and mentality um and eddie hearn who's the boxing promoter runs a podcast and he actually again he actually calls it no passion no point and he had gary lineker on now gary lineker we obviously all knew who gary lineker was and he talked about you know his early football career and even to the right till the end when he retired you know in Barcelona and Japan and all the rest of it before he went to match of the day and he said I never thought I was the best footballer all I knew I could do was to give it a hundred percent I knew I was a good sportsman he didn't know if he was going to be a cricketer or a boxer or a footballer he knew he was a good athlete but he didn't know how good he was until he looked back afterwards and other people told him how good he'd been. You know, it's only when he's sort of chucking in goal after goal week after week and people went, you're pretty good at this, Gary. And he was like, oh, yeah, I am, aren't I? And I was just like, that's really interesting because the other side of sports psychology that you hear about passion and I'm driven and I dream of it and I always knew I had to. And it's just like that self-belief, you know, you have to vision it and you have to actually most humans all of us me certainly 99% of the time you're racked with a complete lack of self-belief and maybe that is what drives you maybe the passion 
for working bloody hard is that fear of failure. Which, oh yes, I think I think yeah. there's a definite there's definitely something in that. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I've come across is conversations with, you know, a, a number of very well accomplished people and again it's a kind of a realization i was saying to somebody the other day that one of the realizations of this journey i'm on is that what's bringing all these different people i mean it's such an eclectic mix of people that I'm, I'm being i'm absolutely you know privileged to be interviewing it's such a varied range of people i mean just to give you an example yesterday I was interviewing um, one of the UK's leading conservationists and he was talking to me about gorillas and <laughs> gorillas and chimpanzees in the Congo and everything. Uh, you know, so it's that kind of that range of different of, of different things. But one of the, again, a common thread when people talk to me, perhaps off air or in the, at the start, they'll say things like, I'm not quite sure what people want to know about me. You know, yeah. that that kind of st that that um, description that keeps coming up a lot more now at the moment i don't know if it's covid and online zoom related but that those two words imposter syndrome it's absolutely, almost absolutely. yeah is that something you've come across and i was thinking um about this i was thinking if i, if I look at my career journey um and so i, I went to a girls school which does form, it, it formulates you to think you can do anything. You can go out there and you can be anybody, you can do anything. What it doesn't prepare you for, certainly in the 90, late 1980s and early 1990s, is a world where you go out and actually it's all about men. Um, and that imposter syndrome either sinks you through self-doubt or it turns into something like well I've got to be twice as good as them and I think it did the latter for me and I was really lucky when, when I look back and think who my mentors were and the people who pushed me and guided me and made me better they were actually all men and that is possibly a sign of the times and and I know it's not fashionable to say that, to go, actually, the strongest influences in my life have actually all been men, other than my mum, who's an absolute bloody legend. But <laughs> in the workplace, they've absolutely all been men because it was just men. I went to Shell, which is the oil and chemicals industry, and then I went to Ford, which is the motor industry. And to a large degree, men of a certain age, men of a certain background, which with masses of self-belief and on you know in some situations certainly more self-belief than actual ability but <laughs> a lot I would imagine but you know you know so like my very first boss at, at Shell was the vice president um of the, the bit I worked in and he's a chap called Bill Cahoon and we're still friends to this day and I would still pick up the phone to him and go what do you think and he was the one you know i marched into his office in my high heels thinking i was off dynasty or something back in the day and look at me being a grown-up um and, and and i went oh my god and bill i think we've got a problem and i hope and he just stopped me there and he went can i just stop you there and he said first of all you don't come to prom me with problems you come to me with solutions he said and second of all he said hope is not a strategy and 
I still say that to this day. I say it to my clients. I say it to my children when they hope they get good results. And I'm like, hope is not the strategy we employ here, folks. And I still say it to this day. And he laughs at me whenever we talk. But what's interesting is he's now, gosh, he must be in his late 60s now, I guess. And he's on sort of another phase of his career. And he's actually coming to me now and going, what do you think about this? How can you help me? And that's a lovely sort of switcheroo that we're actually sort of riffing off each other now. There's something, um, there's something yeah. really satisfying when somebody comes to you. I've had this myself where I've, I've worked or people have worked for me and years later, and there's something very satisfying when they'll say, do you know that story you told me? I use that all yes. the time. Yes. Uh, and you're kind of a bit like, gosh, you know, that you've made that you've made that impact. It's a very yes. it's a very nice feeling. Yes. Just in terms of the, um, the the situation with the, what you've said about women and females. Obviously, there's been a lot more, I suppose, what you might call debate and coverage, I guess, mm -hmm. um, of equality and everything. Um yes. Do you think, as, as somebody who's in, in and around all that, do you think, is is it more, is, is there any substance in it? Do you think it's changed is what I'm asking you, I guess. Do you think it's really changed or is it just a lot of talk? So I do think it's changed. I genuinely do. Um, so it's interesting. What, you know, when I did go to Shell, when I did go to Ford and just watching the world around me, it, it was tokenism it was absolutely tokenism we it mm -hmm. was positive discrimination and i was one of the ones that went well i for one will not be a part of that i'm either good enough to be here or i'm not you know because you have these sort of a dewy-eyed view of the world and, and you think merit alone will get you ahead um and i like to think it has to a degree but it was absolute tokenism and it goes ebbs and flows absolutely i think what's happened in the last certainly the last 10 years and definitely the last five years, is that it's not a conversation that can be ignored any longer and that there are more and more women around the top table. There's more and more women in the room where the decisions are made. Um, and then there's organisations like I'm a part of, which is the Northern Power Women, um, and that's um, start up, started up by Simone Roche. And she came out of the Navy and then worked on things like the 2012 Olympics and went, this is ridiculous. Women are doing amazing things, but they're not getting the, the, the spotlight they deserve, but also the network that they need to help each other, um, but also to be seen as equals um, and, and to get out there and be the decision makers and be celebrated for the work that they're doing. So people like her have come along and really do make a difference, you know, and she is on the phone to 10 Downing Street and she is doing things with amazing organisations. She got an MBE in the New Year's Honours at the start of this year and it well deserved too. Um, and as a result of that, that pay it forward thing, you know, I'm now involved with mentoring at, uh, in sixth forms. Um, I'm coaching online via Zoom, which is a whole other rough. <laughs> I don't think it is tokenism anymore. Um, and for me, it's part of my continuing journey. Because like I said, my role models have always all been men. And for me to, at this late day in my life or career, it makes me sound about 100, doesn't it? I am only 50, I promise you. <laughs> um, and um, for me to have my eyes opened to 
the cool women that are out there that I look up to is, uh, you know, it's great. It's, it's like a reawakening. And it's just like, this is actually really cool that there are really great people out there. And, you know, I have a daughter who's 17 and and I want her to go out there and be the very best version of herself. Um, And I don't want her to necessarily have to do it through positive discrimination. But if there are opportunities that come along to her because she is mixed race, my husband is white and female, but mainly because she's bloody clever, then why not? Why not? Because it, yeah. it, it is making a difference. And you look at, you know, the stats on how COVID has been handled around the world and some of the very best people in the world who've made sensible decisions based not just on logic, but on empathy and on society and not just the individual and all of these sorts of things and not just the economy. But all of it together, you know, this plate spinning thing that women do so bloody well. Those are the people who are our heroes right now. So it's, it's really cool. It's really so, cool. So I, don't, I don't think it's just tokenism. I think there's a change now and it's not going to go away. What I do worry about is um, if you are not already at that top table and you are only coming through the ranks and if you're at the, certainly at the bottom of that, that ladder, a lot of those women have lost jobs in this nine months that we've just gone through and a lot more are going to lose them going forwards, you know, and whether they worked in Topshop or whether they worked in logistics for Topshop or whether they worked in, you know, making stuff for Topshop, those issues are not going to go away and those are now going to be magnified. So we may well have set back the trajectory, but hopefully we won't have set back that conversation because we've got the likes of Simone you know, kicking ass out there. And you. And, well, I hope so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fly and the flag, absolutely you know, right. You know, back to your imposter syndrome thing. You go, well, you know, I don't want people to think I've just jumped on this bandwagon because I haven't spent 30 years banging the drum for feminism. I absolutely haven't. I have spent 30 years banging the drum for excellence and working bloody hard and being nice to people and having a laugh along the way and all of those things that make me who I am. But I am now, you know, having come out of the 80s and 90s, if you were a person of colour and if you were a female, what you needed to do was blend in. Be one of the lads. Be Britisher than the British. That's what you do. So Conform, now I guess. Absolutely conform. Yeah. Blend, you know, blend. Absolutely now as you as we come out of those shadows i think then i am now having days when i think oh god am i a bit of an imposter here because i haven't done it forever but actually go no i am a woman i do work in this world and actually if i do you know show my colors and raise my voice then that can only be a good thing going forwards yeah it makes a lot of sense um do you think that the internet has potentially created a bit more of a, a leveler and I guess what I mean by that is anybody, absolutely anybody can now start a business on the internet. Um, and obviously um, the situation with COVID as we're, we're recording this in just at the start of December during the COVID year, as it'll probably become known, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And, and as a result, I do quite a bit of work for, for various uh, companies linked to government who are supporting startups. And the demand at the moment for startup advice and guidance and coaching and mentoring, as you've just been describing, is just going through the roof. And yeah. it's mainly, obviously, because people have been made redundant from jobs and either they don't have the option for another job or yeah. alternatively, it's like, this is the chance I've needed. I needed to be kicked out of my last job because I probably was very much in love with the wages fairy coming every month. And somebody's, I've just been thrown out of the, into the deep end. So this is my chance. If I don't do it now, I never will. Yeah. So does the, does the internet help in that context in that it's just, you know, anybody can, can do that? I think, yes. I think you're a fellow northerner. Um, you know, crisis breeds creativity because it, it's, it's it's the only thing that's going to get you through, you know, and, and there's a reason Manchester was at the heart of the Industrial Revolution. There's a reason it's sort of on the forefront of um, developing as a, as a new creative hub outside of London. It's And it's that mentality of, I think certainly in the north, of pulling up your socks and getting on with it right what can I do what skills have I got and then yes you look around at the internet you know you don't just have to talk to the person next to you two meters apart obviously you know you've got you've got the whole world to ask and be inspired by um what I worry is that if you're not careful you end up with a world of uh me too's you know well I'll also set up the online business selling knockoff t-shirts from you know the third world i too and and i i worry that the way social media gives some people um a, a veil behind which to hide that online business also gives people um a veil behind which they can hide their accountability and their social responsibility and their moral uh, compass as to do the ends justify the means? Does, you know, um, child labor become okay because you now have an income? Now, necessity dictates that people have got to make money somehow, but the internet is a weird and wonderful place. And it's, you know, for every good thing it does, there's a downside as well. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a blessing and a curse. I don't think I don't Absolutely. think I would disagree with that for a second. Um, yeah. Just want to pick you up there on that, on that because you were talking about creativity, and I'd like to just explore this for a second because it's something I talk to my clients about, funnily enough, a lot, mm -hmm. which is this whole thing about how are you different. And I don't know about you when you do your work, but so often you can hear the tumbleweed or see the tumbleweed rolling around when you say, how are you different? Yeah. And they'll say that they'll say things like which bring me out in a cold sweat, like, well, our customer service is good as if everybody else's is horrendously bad. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, yes. how important is it then for uh, in terms of creativity and the, the role that creativity pl plays in success and achievement and, 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 and getting things done? I think it's everything. It's everything. I think the way I approach it, which, because most clients, when you say, well, let's be creative about this, either come out in a cold sweat because they go, but, but we're not creative people, or they think you're talking about some advertising campaign because that's what they think creative is. 
um, and because I've got a commercial background that then went into creative. So when I left Shell and Ford, I went over to Imagination, which was about brand experience, which is absolutely about the lasting impression that you leave on people as a brand. And I think, and that was Gary Withers, who was an absolute legend. He started his career at window dressing for Selfridges and then went on to found Imagination with exactly the same principles, which is people only remember how you made them feel. You can say what you like. How did you make them feel? And he was this, it looked like Alfred Hitchcock, but he was this amazing character, just full of life. In, he used to appear in this black suit, literally looking at Alfred Hitchcock, sort of out of stage left. Um, <laughs> and then he'd throw in these gems of creativity. So he was one of the brains behind the Millennium Dome, um, at least three areas of that we worked on. Um, and so to answer your question, this how important is creativity? It's everything, because it isn't just about the pretty pictures and the dancing girls and the freebies. It's about thinking differently. And so when I work with clients, as you do, Phil, you you have to get them in a room and go, I know this is how we've always done it, but I want you to just imagine the rules don't apply. Just for today, the rules don't apply. You don't have to worry about we did it that way and it never worked five years ago. A lot's changed in five years. So what could exist now that could make that thought work? So it's about guiding people on that journey because creativity is such a huge word that it scares a lot of people. So you have to kind of go, let's just think outside the box, which is an awful cliche, I know, but it absolutely does matter. And what you find is if you can get people in a room and go, let's think differently about this. And today, no rules apply. Today, just go at it with gay abandon. And let's just be silly. Um, people love it. And, you know, I've never yeah. had a workshop where a bunch of, you know, quite died in the wool sales managers or marketing directors or finance directors. They're the key. If you can turn a finance director or a procurement director, you've you've done your job well to go. I'd never thought about it like that. I've never thought about it like that. So I think the creativity thing is to take people with you on that journey. It's all very well to go in and go. I have the answer. Here it is. Actually, it's much better to go. Let's go on a walk. Let's change things as we go. What if you changed that? What if you changed that? Let's go, literally go on a walk through the high street. You know, when I'm working with retail clients, we go, let's go on a retail safari. Let's literally walk through the high street. And, and I want you to give me a running commentary of what is going on in your head. What can you see? What can you smell? What can you feel? What would you do differently? You know, um, and, and think outside the box. You know, one of the projects I worked on a long time ago with Diageo was to get you know, they said, let's re-energize whiskey. We want a new whiskey and we want it to look really great compared to all the other whiskeys on the shelf. And we went, and I said, well, why would you want it to look slightly better than the next crappy whiskey? Why would you not want it to just look amazing? You know, so we actually took them for a walk around Selfridges perfume area and went, now look at what design can be. Now look at how you create an impact. You know, and that's how we created um, Hey Club, you know, we, you know, for, for um, Giaggio. Um, so it's creativity is asking the questions that clients forget and people forget to ask in the day to day. Number crunchy worlds that unfortunately we all have to live in. 
But yeah, I, I actually, actually um, yeah, 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 absolutely, hundred percent. Know where you're coming from. I remember a guy did say to me, I was running a workshop, and a very senior guy in a company, and I asked him at the end, how did he feel about the day? And it was trying to get into having fun and and vision and all the creative stuff. And he said, the best way I can describe it is, I feel like I've been let out of prison for a day. Yes. Yes. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, every day like, wearing the mask, you know. And... Exactly. I had one lot of clients say to me, <laughs> it was like when we used to have, you'll remember this, do you remember in the old days in school and water play? Do you remember in primary school when water play came out? It mm. was like the highlight of the week. And I remember one of my clients, mm. who must have been about similar age to me, but older, came out and went, it was like when we used to get time to water play when we were kids and I'm like absolutely that's that's always my ambition um and I I think I saw one of your conversations with Mandy Cresswell um Phillips the other day and and she was saying you know if you're not careful you try and become the Jimmy Tarbuck of the room and you are like but the best feeling in the world is when you kind of just drop you know the mic in the middle of the room and everything goes mad and to be able to just stand back and watch it is just a joy it's an absolute joy yeah and one of the classic things about the british as well you usually find is that in the first part in the first half an hour or an hour you could hear a pin drop with this is i think this is i think this is a british thing and they're, they're quiet and they don't really want to say much and nobody's prepared to step out the boundaries and and, and answer, answer a question it's like extracting teeth and then as they come out of their shell and they feel safe yes. then you can't shut them up you're trying to you're trying to break for <laughs> break for lunch and you can't right i'm gonna stop you there <laughs> so but how are you how are you at silences phil do you feel like you have to fill the silence in the room? Uh, that's an interesting question, actually, and, I, and I, c- I can answer it. I think that in the past, when I was younger, 100% I was uncomfortable with, with silences. But I think as I've got older, I've, I'm, I don't have that problem to the same degree. Uh, plus the fact, probably, I'd, I rarely stop talking anyway, so there's probably not much a chance... <laughs> Not much chance of it being silent for long, um, but I know I know what you're referring to. I know yeah. exactly what you're referring to. Um, let me just ask you about because um, I know you obviously you, you're heavily involved. I think you're vice chairman of the Showtown uh, project in Blackpool. Um, yes. Do you yes. just tell me a little bit about that because I've been obviously doing a, a few interviews recently about Blackpool and the uh, Royal Variety performance. Of course, yeah. it is there, and you're heavily involved in the Showtown. But just just tell me a bit about Showtown and and what it is and how it's how it's developing. So Showtown is going to be the first museum in England, certainly, possibly the UK, that is entirely dedicated to not just the history, but the legacy of entertainment and fun. So originally, back in the day, um, if you were going to make it in the UK, you had to make it in London. And you had to make it in Blackpool because Blackpool was the original resort. It was the Vegas of the UK. If you were going on holiday, you know, before the days of cheap flights and all the rest of it, you know, in the 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, post-war, 
it was where you went to. You might only go for the day to see the illuminations and the night. Remember, it was all being packed into the back of a car with our pyjamas on. Or you went for a short break. You know, you literally went on a Wallace Arnold coach tour to Blackpool, um, which can you imagine telling that to kids these days? Yeah, uh, yeah. But it, it was where you went to make it. So, you know, the likes of Morecambe and Wise and Des O'Connor and, you know, Cannon and Ball and even the modern guys, you know, even the Ant and Dex and the Mansfords and all of those people have made it in Blackpool and therefore almost have the ticket in their hand, the golden ticket that goes, and now I can go see the rest of the world. So the opportunity came up to um, join that team. And Spencer Phillips is the most bonkers individual I've ever met. And he's the chair and he's wonderful. And he's worked with the Lloyd Webbers of this world and the Springsteens. And he's, you know, he's just amazing. He's got the most outrageous little black book and I will never tire of listening to his stories. Um, but so we, we work together and we're kind of like this double act where believe it or not, I have to bring the grown up to the, to the party. Um, so it's like, Spencer's like, well, we could be this and we could be this and we could be this. But it's really important for the town because on paper, it is one of the most economically deprived places in the UK in terms of statistics on life expectancy and health statistics and where, how far education gets a person. And then there's this sort of huge swathe of people that get to 17 and just leave and then come back maybe in their 30s and 40s. So it's got a brain drain issue, it's got educational issues, it's got economic issues, it's got infrastructure issues, but what it has got is a council that knows it's sitting on these absolute gems, the tower, the opera house, winter gardens, the pleasure beach, everything, the golden mile. Um, and so what they've realized, I think it was originally about six, seven years ago, and it's taken this long to get it to this stage, with Heritage Lottery funding to go, we ought to be celebrating where we've come from and showing how that has impacted young people of today. The entertainment use, you know, Britain's Got Talent is a direct descendant of what it takes to get on the Royal Variety performance. And that is in its way, a direct result of all the people that did variety, all the people that used to get up at Saturday night at the London Palladium, you know, Saturday night at the Winter Gardens, entertainment for the masses. Um, and so it was about bringing all of that together, but creating something that becomes sustainable over the next few years once it's open. So it opens April 2022. Um, and it's about using that as a catalyst for commercial regeneration, for footfall, for linking in with five star hotels, for linking in with the other entertainment um, uh that is on offer in Blackpool to get people to come, to get people to stay for longer, to spend their money locally. So it's very much an economic driver. And the reason I'm involved with that was I've, I'm still on the um, trustee board, founding trustee of the, the Peace Hall in Halifax, which is the oldest remaining clubhouse in the UK, in Europe, sorry. Um, and it kind of looks like Somerset House but it's in Halifax in the north. And it was originally, it was called the Peace Hall because that's where people, merchants used to come to trade pieces of cloth. Um, and it's this massive square. It's like this fabulous piazza. And again, a, 
the Coltsdale Council back in 2012, 2013, um, managed to um, secure a fabulous grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund again and from Arts Council and then matched it. So we ended up with £22 million to spend on completely refurbing this 18th century Georgian cloth house and then creating um, and, and deciding what that needed to be. And that was where I came in. It was like, well, what is it? Is it is it just spaces for shops? Is it just a piazza that will no doubt get left to wreck and ruin as it always does? Is it uh, an entertainment venue? What is it? So my work within that was to go, well, let's think about the brand. Let's think about the experience. Let's think about the different lenses that people come to this with. Um, and as a result of that, we ended up opening two or three years ago. We've surpassed every target we set ourselves. We've created eight million pounds in terms of revenue from a local gross um, value added point of view. We've created extra footfall. So with the concentric circles around it are all getting better and better and better. You know, there's more money, there's more people, there's more people shopping, coffee shops, there's more everything. It's now an international arts venue and uh, a music venue as well so like next summer this summer we had uh elbow playing or last summer sorry this summer's nothing's happened last summer we had elbow playing we've had uh the kaiser chiefs we've had next summer we're gonna have ub40 we've got nile rogers coming we've got big names coming and going this is an amazing space um and that's what we want to do with showtown in blackpool which is yeah help put Blackpool back on the map in an authentic way by telling its story and so what Spencer and I are bringing is this yin and yang of um, name up in lights and I'm kind of like well let's just look at the rigour of this shall we um, but obviously it's absolutely linking into my, my inner creativity as well I'm working with the team there and going how can this be better than just something that needs to get opened on time. How can this be excellent? Which brings us kind of back full circle to what is my passion? It's like, well, it's got to be bloody brilliant and nothing less will do. Um, yeah, but you know, I think that that's uh, that drive, that, that that passion in all honesty, it just exudes from you. I don't know if you, obviously you're just doing it and you're just talking, but I see it and I just see the enthusiasm and the feeling that you're actually making a difference and that you're achieving things and everything. Right, I'm going to come to an end because uh, I'm running out of time. Um, but okay. obviously, I don't think there's any doubt we could talk a lot more. Uh, so I might, there's a good chance I'll probably have you back on for part two. Okay. Um, very, very final thing then, uh, putting you a little bit on the spot, but. Um, if you could give people watching this, maybe younger people watching this, one or two tips on the key drivers behind achieving things. I'm going to I'm not going to say achieving success because it's always a little bit what success to different people. But what tips would you give to people who maybe are starting a journey or are thinking about starting a new business? It doesn't matter what they're trying to do. What tips would you give them to maximise their potential? Gosh, I think... two things and so the first thing is what am I trying to show you this this is just a notebook but I literally 
plan my days and my weeks. You know, everything has a tick list because if you don't write it down, you haven't made that contract with yourself of actually putting into action what it is you want to do. Um, my kids absolutely joke about it with me. And go, oh, God, mum's got to list out there. <laughs> so I can put in them. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not wedded to it. It's just to remind me that you said you were going to do this and either put a cross in it and say you're not doing it or tick it and say, right, I'm going to do it. But this kind of middle of the road, am I, am I not? I think there's three things I'm going to tell you. So the second is don't be afraid to ask for help. And I've come to that very late in my life. I've, I've always welcomed help, but I've always been too afraid to ask for help because it's, I almost thought that was a sign of a, a weakness thing. Certainly when I went out into the workplace, you didn't go, I'm having a hard day or I'm struggling to cope or I can't make sense of this. You just had to muscle through and power on through. So I would always say now, definitely ask for help when you want to. Ask for help for people connecting you with people who can help you get to where you want to be. Ask for help and go, I've got too much on my plate. And so you can actually see the wood for the trees. Um, and I think finally, it's got to be fun. It's, it's, you know, like I said, I hope people leave a meeting and a conversation with me going, well, that was a laugh. And God, she uses a lot of bad language. And <laughs> you know, You've done very well today. You've held it in today. <laughs> so, yeah, I think those three things, um, you know, it's and, and, and also, finally, I suppose, anyone you think who has got it all absolutely nailed and is living the dream and has got it all down is, is not telling the truth. You know, everyone is a work in progress and that's okay. And you should absolutely be at peace with yourself for that. You are never going to be the finished article. That is, you know, we didn't even rehearse that. I know I put you on the spot. <laughs> but if, you, if you had rehearsed it, you couldn't have done a better job of it because all those I think are very relevant. And, you know, and it's some of the simplest things, you know, technical, technological digital age. And you know what? A notebook is pretty useful. <laughs> Absolutely. No, we Wonderful. Okay. Well, Ruth, thanks very much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. And uh, as I said, I'd love to have you back on at some point as well, maybe in the future to tell us uh, all about Showtown and where it's at and it's, it's opening and everything else. So thanks for joining me today on Passions. I'm sure there's a lot of people got a lot of insight from that. I know I, ha I certainly have. And I guess a thank you from me for taking me on another direction, which is this whole idea of passions as a mindset, not as a thing. So that's been that's been worth it for me just for, for that particular piece. So thanks ever much for joining me and uh, I'll catch you again very soon. Thank you. Take care, Phil. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.